And now, for the 343rd time, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, wherever it may currently be, probably high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street. 343. I mean, we should congratulate ourselves or be ashamed of ourselves. I Um, think we owe people a certain level of, you know, frankly, apology more than anything else, probably. You know, it, it, it's a little bit self-aggrandizing to push out 343 nearly hour-long discussions that feature yourself, isn't it? Um, it's, yes, but then again, putting up a Facebook page is a version of that. Everything we do these days is self-promotion of some sort or another. So I, I'm just thinking that if we keep this up long enough, there will be science fiction writers publishing who were not born when we began. Well, was, well, hang on, no, I don't think you and I are likely to achieve that. I mean, think about it. We began in March or something of 2010. So you are that you know, really you, you would have to go another 15 years of this to really get towards that kind of a you know a situation. You don't believe there are any promising nine-year-old science fiction writers out there? I wouldn't want I... to speak to that directly because it's always possible, but I think the odds are low. Okay, that's possible as well. Anyway, <laughs> this. We, we we have a major announcement for our for, for our listener, uh, which is that we have a structured idea for a podcast tonight. We do. For, for a long time, I've talked about finding ways to uh, put this together into, into pieces and segments to see if it will go. And so this week, we're going to talk about three things, aren't we? We're going to talk about time mm-hmm. travel stories. We're going to talk about urbanization in science fiction and the role of the city and about the current spate of science fiction's interest in the Arctic and the, pol- our, the, the, the our planet's polar regions as a possible right. setting. So, that's what we're going to do. We actually already almost have notes written for this episode. We could just put them up and not even record the thing. People could just read the notes. It would be great. We could do that. We could just turn this into an email exchange. Nevertheless, uh, the, 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 first, the first topic was, was your idea. The time You've noticed this. And yes. you notice this because you read a lot more short fiction than I do, and you read a lot more fiction that some of it may not even be published. And and your observation was that there seems to be an uptick in time travel stories. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I put together to you for this was that, you know, a TV show like Doctor Who has been telling time travel stories for 50 years. Heinlein's yeah. reputation, at least in part, lies on one very famous time travel short story. Kids, my right. kids grew up reading Back to the Future. The idea of time travel is not only well established, it's embedded in our culture. And you turn around, you get, I mean, last year, probably the year's best novella or one of the top three or four was Kelly Robson's God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, which was based mm-hmm. on time travel. Ian MacDonald used it in his Time Was. Uh, I was just hearing the other day that Annalee Newitz has a new novel coming out in September, I think. And it's based around time travel. So what is it about time travel that we keep coming back to? Why? Because is it more than just a, ch- a desire to get a second run at today? Uh, well, I, I think there are relatively few novels. I mean, one of the ones uh, that you didn't mention, which is brand new, is Gregory Benford's novel, which involves going back to 1968. It's a, and for that matter, Stephen King's novel about going back to 1963. So one of the things that... I would argue is that the time travel story never went away. It's always been a standard part of science fiction. Now it's just become a standard part of almost all sorts of fiction. You have time travel romances. You have time travel horror stories. You have um, Joyce Carol Oates writing a time travel story. Uh, And I think one of the reasons for that 
is that at some point, science fiction writers and readers more or less agreed that time travel just isn't going to work. It's not a hard science fiction concept anymore. And well, it's I don't not think a hard it ever science- seriously has been. Even if you go back to Wells, I don't know that it was ever that solidly a hard science fiction idea. In fact, in some ways, the attra- one of the attractions of it as a science fiction idea, I think, is that you can completely set aside the technology. You just use a piece of hand wavium, whether it be a TARDIS or a yeah. ma- you know, or if it's Barry Allen on the Flash running so fast that he can go back in time, which makes all the sense in the world. Right. Um, but it's the it's the why of it and and what it means. You know, it's it, it's partly that fascination I think with time slip, with you know, what if, what, what how how could I make today different? Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that goes back, and you, know, you, you find yourself in attempts to kill Hitler or attempts to you know, revisit famous places. But I wonder if part of it today is that, and the reason why we see it, and the fact, and why God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach is such a good mm. example of it. I mean, the whole point of God's Monsters and the Lucky Peach, not to spoil it because it's in the rough setup and doesn't really talk to why it's an enjoyable piece of fiction, but the right. idea is to go back in time far enough to get information so that you can deal with the current level of time of uh, climate change. Interestingly, Alistair Reynolds' new novella, which is coming out in about six or eight weeks, Permafrost, has a variation on exactly the same idea. It is using a particularly interesting piece of technology that he's, that he's thought up, mm. uh, a way to go back in time to make something happen so that people in the present of the story can address the issues of climate change. And I think that idea goes back at least to to Benford's timescape, which was yeah. communication back in time, but again, trying to trying to fix the present by fixing the past in some way. Although that's not quite what happens in the Kelly Robson thing. She's it's actually I'll make a distinction here. That's actually about time travel as research. You're trying to yeah. find out things about the Tigris Euphrates River Valley that you can use to to study contemporary environmental problems. And the idea of time travel is as as research of one sort or another Again, has always been there to some extent. I mean, it's it's what Connie Willis's Doomsday Book, you know, all, all of t- Connie Willis's time travel stories, significantly are based in the history department of Oxford University. Mm-hmm. So, just finding out things about the past is one thing. Trying to change the past in order to change the present, which sounds like the Al Reynolds thing you're talking about, is a is a I think a much more recent phenomenon. Well, maybe it is. I mean, I think you probably have to read closely. I'm also curious, I mean, you were saying in the email exchange that we had about this particular episode mm-hmm. that you had a theory about time travel, about how it had started out as a particular kind of magical fiction, moved into utopian fiction, was appropriated into SF, and now the mainstream wants it back. Now, I'm curious yeah. as to why you think that's true, because... I'm not convinced that the mainstream wants it back. I think it's a, something different. No, I don't think the mainstream... Well, the mainstream wants it back in, in the sense that the mainstream had it first. Uh, and I go back to the two examples I like to think of before Wells were, of all things, Dickens' A Christmas Carol, in which he asked the question, which is central to a lot of time travel fiction, when he's looking at the ghosts of Christmas yet to come, are these things that may be only, or are they things that must be? He's talking about, can I change this future if I change my behavior now? That's a very interesting science fictional idea. 
but the fact is, he, he travels into the past and the future with the aid of ghosts. With uh, Twain's in Kinetic Yankee and King Arthur's Court, he gets hit over the head with a wrench, and he ends up in... So time travel was always magical or supernatural or that sort of thing. I'm pretty sure until Wells. And Wells came up with what I'm guessing in 1895 probably sounded like a reasonable scientific explanation. He made this argument that you can travel freely in three dimensions, and if time is the fourth dimension, why can't you travel freely in that? Um, it makes a kind of logical sense, even if it makes no sense in terms of physics. And after Wells, uh, science fiction sort of started talking about time machines. I'm pretty sure you didn't have the connection of technology with time travel until Wells. And as far as the utopian, the utopian novels tend to, including Wells's When the Sleeper Wakes, they tended to have people travel into the future by either getting hit on the head or falling asleep. Um, there was no technology involved except maybe suspended animation. And it was, I think it was the pulp writers who thought, okay, uh, and, and Murray Leinster and people like that said, we're going to run with this idea of a time machine. Uh, and it became a, a, a trope of science fiction. And it stayed in science fiction, I think, pretty much until it broke out into the mainstream with things like Back to the Future, uh, which, as I've, I've argued before on the podcast, Back to the Future was a primer for general popular movie audiences in all the ins and outs of time travel and paradoxes and uh, so forth and so on. Um, and then you had bestsellers like The Time Traveler's Wife. Um, you have the, the new Joyce Carol Oates novel. So I have a thing. My, my, my sense is that time travel pretended to be a science fiction concept for about 100 years and now is simply a literary device which anybody can use. Let me ask you a, a question that branches off from that. And that is, how do you make time travel and what it does matter then? One of the great traps of all time travel stories is you can go back and erase what you've done. It makes yeah. things not mean anything. I mean, this is a great question surrounding even something like the mega billion dollar Avengers franchise. You know, once you put time travel on the table, everything can be undone. How do you make exactly. it happen in fiction? Well, that's gonna it's going to be an issue which we'll have to wait to see the next Avengers movie to to, to satisfy that. But every, almost in every case where this has shown up in a time travel story, changing the past turns out to be a bad idea. The archetypal story again. One of the few science fiction stories which even in the 50s was known widely outside the science fiction field was Bradbury's The Sound of Thunder. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of that is that, well, you, if you make even the tiniest change in the past, the butterfly effect, the whole sort of thing. Sure. So changing the past is almost never a good idea in science fiction. It almost never works. Yeah. But then, I mean, the Kelly Robson one isn't about changing the past. It's about changing the, the present by learning it's about, about the learning past. From Sure, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so there is that. Uh, the Ian uh, McDonald story, Time Was, is both a time travel story and a time travel story that's not interested in time travel. It's a, it's a time it's travel a, it's, romance. It's, it's a right. romance about separation and whatever there the mechanism a, of separation uh, there is. Um, yeah, well, well, and, and again, I'd say part of the background of that story, and I have no idea, I doubt very much if Ian McDonald had ever read or writer named Robert Nathan, but he wrote a novel in the 40s called A Portrait of Jenny, sure. which is a time slip story. The guy keeps finding this young, he meets her as a little girl, and then a few weeks later she's a young woman, and then it's, it's completely a time slip romance, and it's wildly romantic. It's a beautiful story. 
but nobody would think of it as science fiction. And I don't think the Ian McDonald thing is conceived of as science fiction. It's a time travel story, but it's not a science fiction story. Given how familiar this trope and all of its manifestations mm. are to popular culture on the broadest, largest scale now, to the point where mm. restricting it to science fiction or not is really silly. Um, given that, do you think that a story like Heinlein's By His Bootstraps, which is the story I was referring to, mm. could possibly have the kind of impact that story had now? You mean? It, uh, I mean, I mean, the unfolding of that story. Does it still? Can it still hold any impact? Have any resonance for readers? When, frankly, it's another unfolding of another iteration and of what time travel does, and we're now so familiar with that, it becomes almost obvious. Now, are you talking about by his bootstraps or all you zombies? Maybe all. Which, which is the one where he becomes his own grandmother? All you zombies is the one that has one character who is his own mother and yeah, his sorry, father. All you zombies, then. That's right, yeah. Okay, oh, which I was made. My, I just blew my science fiction credibility wide open, didn't I? Well, now but anyway, yeah, continue, yes. The fact that it was made, and now I'm going to blank my blank on the title, it was made into a fairly decent movie uh, just about four or five years ago, which more or less kept all the – I can't remember the title. People will remind us of it. But uh, the fact that the movie was popular, a lot of people who hadn't read the story thought it was really ingenious. Uh, I think it's a story which at the time was, from Heinlein's point of view, as far as I can tell, uh, a clever logical puzzle. Now seems to be a kind of metaphor for the kind of narcissistic bubbles we all live in. You know, you actually have a story in which there's only one character. Uh, it's 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 entirely his own universe, and it seems to me, based on the reaction, as I say, the responses to the movie of people who hadn't read the story, that it resonates in completely different ways than Heinlein would ever expected. Yeah, which of course is, is you know is, is the, the both the benefit and the risk that any work takes, you know, being read through time, if you like. But mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, do you see any sign of time travel as a trope abating or becoming less useful? I don't think so. Uh, uh, because it's, you know, it, it, in a sense, time travel is simply making literal what fiction does all the time anyway. Uh, fiction moves back and forth in time. It can, uh, you know, leap forward 20 years. I was uh, watching the beginning, the first two episodes of... Um, Justin Cronin's The Passage, which is now a Netflix series, I guess, unless it's an HBO series or Prime series or whatever. And it starts off with a near-future apocalypse and then jumps 90 years into the future. Well, you know, it's time travel because the author decides to jump 90 years into the future. Nobody <laughs> in the book jumps 90 years into the future. We do. Uh, and so I think it's simply a recognition that fiction can do this sort of thing. It's 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 one of those old, old storytelling techniques that has kind of come back. The one thing I don't accept, and I've seen this argument made also, is that we're attracted to time travel because we want to live in some other time than the present. The present is so awful, we thought about getting to a better future or to a better past. And I can't think of a time travel story in which either the future or the past is that much better. It almost always turns out to backfire on the time traveler. I, I guess. I mean, I guess what I see, though, I mean, I'm, this is reiterating, but I mean, uh, I think the, the, what made this whole topic occur to me was there's, I, I really think there's this feeling that the 
problems of our present and our immediate future, and by that I mean the next 50 years, seem so mm. large and so overwhelming and so untractable that going back and preventing them ever happening becomes a really attractive idea. Now, that's not what Robson does. It is no. basically what the next Annalee Newitz book, uh, The Future of Another Timeline, is about. You know, that's time-traveling ge geologists well. trying to prevent a dark future coming to pass. Um, and that seems to be... Is it more than wish fulfillment? It's. I think it's a version of, of Asimov's psychohistory, the idea that history can be manipulated, the idea that you can change certain things. I mean, uh, the, you know, the killing your grandfather, killing Hitler, and that sort of thing. I say every every story, and again, I invite our readers, if there are stories in which you go back and change the past and everything turns out to be really fine in the present, um, I think that I'd like to hear about it because my sense is that these tri these are all cautionary tales. I think we would like to have a better present, but there's always the thought that it could be worse, that we could actually make things worse than they are now. And it seems to me that's more likely to be what happens in a time travel story than not. Fair enough. Fair enough. So tell me, uh, we've touched on all you zombies, definitely not by your bootstraps. What do you think are the neatest time travel stories that people should go read now? If, if, if for some reason you're going, you know, I didn't read that enormous... Uh, book of time travel stories that Marty Greenberg and Charlie War put together. I do, haven't yeah. read, you know, and you know the Kelly Robson story of the time. What what are the great time travel stories to go and read? Bring the Jubilee by Ward Moore. Bring the Jubilee is a classic of its sort. Uh, there was also a historian named McKinley Cantor who wrote a a book called If the South Had uh, Won the Civil War. And there are all those, um, you know, the, the, the time alternate timeline things, the Harry Turtledove genre, which is what I think of, is, is virtually a separate thing. My idea of a great time travel story is one that deals with the issues that are raised by time travel, which, in the case of the story I'm thinking about, includes capitalism, greed, colonialism, and most of all, what happens to a character. I think one of the great time travel stories is John Crowley's Great Work of Time, which actually deals with... Uh, Cecil Rhodes and and Rhodesia and, and, and that sort of history. It's, it's not uh, an obvious kind of history that you would go look at, but he unpacks a lot of the kind of moral issues in time travel in that story in, a, in just a beautifully written way. Fair enough. And how, how would you take something like Replay by Ken Grimwood or um, Groundhog Day, the film, which are basically short-term short, short time travel, Right, and those—I don't, I don't know if I think of those as time travel stories or as time loop stories. Fair um, enough. I had a—I've had a discussion with other science fiction critics about these distinctions: time loop stories, where you end up living the same day or changing the same day. Um, there's that—that um, that happens in in Stephen King's nineteen uh, whatever it is, nineteen sixty-three novel. Um, time loop stories are one subgenre in the science fiction. Time slip stories, where you somehow slip in and out of time, which is like the Ian McDonald thing or Robert Nathan. Time travel, it strikes me, is something where you deliberately set out to go into the past or the future and have some mechanism for doing so. Now, it might be that these distinctions are only of interest to science fiction critics uh, or science fiction readers. Uh, but the general 
public sense of time travel, I think, has to do with either being sent into the past uh, as a punishment, as in the Joyce Carol Oates novel, or trying to save the present by communicating with the past or going back into the past. Um, but in, in, in every case, as a science fiction concept, time travel has to be something which is deliberately and intentionally set up. Fair enough. I have this feeling, and I'm going to have to go off and research it and come back, because I just have this feeling that, you know, Connie Willis did her Oxford time travel stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, around Firewatch, whatever else, which originally you know, originated back in the mid-'80s, the, the, the short right. stories, right, and became Doomsday Watch. And I know that Doomsday. readers based in the U.K. have grave and serious doubts mm-hmm. about them as books. But I sort of feel like that was the last major piece of time travel short f- of fiction barring maybe a short sto- story or two here and there until about now I kind of feel like I mean yes it's been in media fiction med- you know, mm. media media fiction been in film been in television but it feels like it's a tool that so- serious science fiction writers are taking up again now and that's what I find interesting I think one of the I, I, you may be right and I'd be anxious to see how uh, newer writers like Annalee Newitz handled this idea. My sense is that science fiction writers have picked up on this general cultural sense that time travel is no longer something that you have to spend a lot of time rationalizing. Yeah. You don't have to do a lot of hand-waving physics, and you don't have to invoke many worlds interpretations of quantum mechanics. You can just use time travel the way people have always used it because you need it to tell your story, and uh, and readers accept it now. Yeah. And I, I guess we should probably point people to a few things that might give them an idea of where to start if they're interested and for some reason have escaped any kind of historical overview. And probably the best I can think of is the Anne, and Je- Anne Vandermeer and Jeff Vandermeer anthology, The Time Traveler's Almanac, which is yeah. an, an, an enormous you know, collection of a hundred years worth of uh, t- you know, time travel stories going back to Wells and before and then up as far as Charles Yu and people yeah. like that. So that would be something. But with that, maybe that brings our opening segment to a close. This is where and if we, we ran advertising, we could have advertising. Well, we just advertised the new Annalise Newitz novel, and I don't even know the title of it yet. I, 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 to, I told you what the title of it was. Weren't you even listening? No, I'm like, anyway. Dude. I'm, okay. I'm having wine. What do you... <laughs> the Future of Another Timeline is the name of the book. That's coming out in September. Ah, you did. Okay, fine. So there you go. And, you know, Annalee will be here in Perth in April, so it won't be out. Charlie Jane Anders will be here, though, to talk about the city in the middle of the night when she comes out with with Annalee for SwanCon. And, of course, with a little bit of luck, she will be joining us next week on the Cood Street Podcast to talk about that book. Okay, that'll be fun. Now, I was doing a little bit of reading during the week about... Mm -hmm the changing demographics of the world in which we live. And I was struck by the fact, first of all, that I, mean, I, did, I, I guess I knew this, that in the year 1900, there was one and a half billion people living on the earth, they estimate. Obviously, they don't mm-hmm. know for a fact, but they estimate. Now, 120 years later, seven and a half billion people. They figured that will grow to 10 billion by the middle of the century, by, tw- by 2050. Mm-hmm. That's, first of all, an enormous increase in the burden that humanity is placing on the planet. But one of the things about it is 
the level of urbanization of people moving from the country to the city, living in increasingly more dense, urbanized environments is increasing, mm. especially in Africa, China, and India, where once many of the world's largest cities were in Western countries, they are now almost exclusively in in those three areas. I mean, I think maybe, is it Lagos is possibly the largest city in the world with a population of 20-something million people? No, between between that and and we could include uh, South America in that with Sao Paulo sure. and, and so forth and so on. But I think you're right. And I think it's ironic because going back to the uh, some of the earliest arguments about how to deal with overpopulation, some of the earliest solutions, back in the as far back as the 50s, but the 60s when Paolo Soleri became really popular, was the idea you're going to have to build these giant arcologies. You're going to have to build these hundred-story high buildings. Uh, and still one of the most memorable, memorable books about the Solarian arcology is, is Robert Silverberg's The World Inside, which is basically a group of short stories knit together. But the argument there was you're going to need so much land space for agriculture to feed this gigantic population that the only way you'll have that land space available is by concentrating everybody into giant buildings. Um, and probably... And, mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say one of the things in the... 50 years or so since that idea became popular that has sort of scotched it is that that much land is probably not going to be available anyway because of encroaching seas and the farming of the seas is becoming more problematical. So I'm thinking that the arcology solution doesn't seem to work as well as it might have seemed to work in 1968. Maybe, though, I'm not 100% sure you're correct. I think it's going to ret- it retains a lot of att- you know, attractiveness as a possible solution in fiction. Certainly, mm-hmm. I mean, in the previous segment, we were talking about Kelly Robson's story, God's Monster, the Unlucky Peach, and it certainly mm-hmm. involves a variation of the arcology concept. Mm-hmm. What I was going to say to you, though, was, you know, probably the most famous image of the city, of an urbanized, non-rural environment, must be Trantor from Asimov's Foundation, which is basically a single world-spanning city, right? It's, it's one mm. great built-up mega-environment. That has appeared in science fiction repeatedly, as yeah. have hum, you know, hum, humans living in artificial environments for those kind of things. What do you think was the attraction of that in the, what, the late 40s, early 50s, when Asimov was reading those stories? Writing those stories. Well, I can tell you what, I, I know what the attraction for Asimov was, because I've actually read his long autobiographies. The attraction for Asimov was that it meant he would never, ever have to leave Manhattan again. The whole world would be Manhattan. He was terrified of the countryside. He was terrified of traveling. He said, I want everything to look like my block. And he just created a world for his own personal fantasy. And it's, and the, fact that, it's the fact that the editor at that time, at the same period, in the early 50s, the editor mm-hmm. of Galaxy Magazine was the famously agoraphobic H.L. Gold who never wanted to leave uh, Manhattan at all. Uh, th- th- there's kind of this romanticization of urbanization, and it's it may not even be confined to science fiction because, you know, as far as I can tell, Lovecraft was terrified of open spaces outside of Providence. <laughs> so, so, so part of this was just a, a sense of it's a security blanket, the, the city as a security blanket. I'm sure that's what it worked as with Asimov. For the readers, I don't know. Well, the one thing we might throw in here to just mix up the conversation mm. is that the one novel from this period, the early 50s, or the one fix-up novel, 
that was actually titled City by Clifford Simak was about the end of cities. It was yes. about the fact that improved com communication, improved transportation, people no longer had to live in urban centers to do their work, and therefore uh, the population gets spread evenly on small towns and so forth and so on. My argument, again, is a completely ad hominem argument, is that Clifford Simak hated cities and wanted to live in small towns in Minnesota, <laughs> so he imagined his future world being all small towns like his. Sure. But if, if, you, if you take ad hominem, ad hominem mark, you know, arguments out of it for a second and look at the question, I mean, for whatever reason, the arcology particularly, which is you know, large, self-contained cities, mm. possibly with their own actual environments that they're completely sealed. I mean, if you look as recently as the Water Knife by Paolo mm -hmm. Bacigalupi, it's based around building enormous arcologies that are environmentally sealed from the harsh world outside. It's how humanity might survive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the rise of climate change, whatever else. So it... it and also, I mean, th there are theories that suggest that if you could just get humanity back into... The, I mean, right now, there are theories. If you could get humanity into densely populated urban environments, then you could allow the rest of the planet to recuperate from the damage that we have done to it. That's, a, that, that's an interesting idea. I don't think it's the idea which is behind the water knife. The water knife is a novel about uh, extreme greedy capitalists cornering the water market in the American Southwest by building Las Vegas into a refuge for the wealthy. Um, it's not – they're not concerned about saving the rest of the world as well. The, the parts of that novel that take place in Texas or, or New Mexico are just nightmarish dystopian things, for example. So, so to some extent, that's one of the problems with our colleges is that the people who get to live in them are really wealthy, well-to-do, secure people. And the people who get left outside are going to live in this desertified environment uh, that the abuse. In, in other words, what I'm saying is, does the utopia promised by an arcology or a giant megalopolis come at the expense of a horrible dystopia for the people left on the outside? Sometimes it does. Sometimes in fiction, your, your, your arcology, your, your city concept has been used as a visual representation of cultural stratification. With, mm. There's no absolutely true. You only have to even look back at things like Logan's Run. You know, I saw Logan's Run. I, I watched part of it. Unfortunately, it's it's no longer possible to watch all of it. Um, although Jenny Agutter was pretty attractive, and so was Michael York. And part of it was filmed. Interestingly enough, I remember reading this at the time in the brand new Hyatt Regency Hotel in Houston or something like that. In other words, they didn't even have to build sets. They had this gigantic self-contained city being built. The film was made right after the giant Hyatt Regency atrium hotels were being built. Um, but again, the idea there is that if you can escape, there may be a survivable world on the outside after all. And to go back even, I think, no, it's after Logan's run. To THX 1138, the whole thing, again, is escaping to the surface, which turns out to be probably not as bad as everybody had told you. Um, but I wonder, that, it, a lot of the ahead. times, the reason for these isolated city environments is to protect us from the world, right? You know, the world has become hostile. Whether it was there's a fantasy novel that became a movie called The City of Ember or something, uh, oh, yeah. which was people squirreled away. The arcology concept is very much that kind of squirreling yourself away either because 
uh, the divide between the rich and the poor is so, so great mm. that the rich have to hide themselves to protect themselves, and we certainly see that happening in the world around us now. But is it possible that it will become an idea, and this is implicit what we're saying, and connects all of the social subjects today together, that it is a mechanism that we will use to protect the world from us? That's an interesting thought. I don't know if I've read any story that deals with that directly at all. There, there are lots of different kinds of urbanization in science fiction. You mentioned Trantor, which I think sort of evolves not just with Asimov, but it evolved in all those great Frank R. Paul covers for pulp magazines and back covers. Uh, and before that, there was what still is to me one of the most amazing science fiction stories of all was E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, which is like 1904, if I recall correctly in which people are living in these underground bunkers, communicating only by something like video screens uh, and never seeing the outside world and never having contact with each other. In other words, he's talking about people being addicted to their iPhones in 1904. Um, and then you went through this period, okay, you went through this period with the giant megalopolis of the future, and then we went through another period, which may be related to things like Neuromancer and uh, films like Blade Runner, and for that matter, films like Escape from New York, where the urban environment itself became the nightmare, became the dystopia. Your, your, your job was to escape from it. Uh, and I think that came about partly in the United States, at least, because in the 1980s, New York was notable for garbage strikes and high crime rates and so forth and so on. So was Chicago, for that matter. And the, the conceit behind that particular film was that New York literally becomes a maximum security prison and the goal is to escape. So the the city goes from a glowing city on a hill, you know, to quote Reagan, to this nightmare, horrible place that you have to get out of, to what we have now, which is what we have. What is the current – what is the modern city in science fiction, would you say? I don't really know. I mean, I think it's evolving and changing. I mean, surely the best city that I've read lately was in Sam Miller's book, Blackfish City, which was an intriguing construct of a city. Mm -hmm. you know, I guess, so, you know, I think, I, I, I don't know what the, the be best, most recent one is. Arguably the most famous one from the last 10 years or so would have to be mm -hmm. Baslag, the, the, the China Mieville city from right. uh, Perdita Street Station and its accompanying books. And in fact, what I was going to ask you is, what do you think the the most famous, most beloved cities are in science fiction and fantasy? Because if you look at... Okay, Trant, mm. uh, we've talked about Trantor from Asimov. Mm. There's Mike Harrison's Viriconium. There's Baslag. Right. You know, uh, what are the great cities of science fiction in your opinion? That's an interesting question. Would you include fantasy in that? I think I would, because after because all, all, all a city is, I mean, if you think about it, cities are, 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 can be used as a, as a story prompt, as a solution to a problem, as a, as a laboratory for investigating solutions of problems. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, what they are is the focal point of civilization. They're where people come together. And that makes it a platform for story, whether it's Paul Filippo's linear city or mm -hmm. whatever else. So, you know... Well, if we're going to include fantasy in this, then I, I think one of the things I find myself a sucker for, and, and it's the idea that cities are not all that they seem, that the, the attraction of a city is that there's always a secret city within the city. Um, and that's, there's part of that in Boslag, but then 
China Mieville went on to write Kraken, which is a secret London novel. And Paul Cornell has written secret London novels. Kraken or on London? Neil Gaiman's... Kraken or on London? Both, actually. Unlondon was a kind of alternate, but Kraken uh, I mean, took place I mean, in, in, in London. Cities are the, cities are the great or cities and urbanization are the great theme of all of Mievel's work, surely. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether whether it be the Baslag books or Unlondon or the City in the City. Anyway, you were mm-hmm. saying. Well, I was going to say that that the, the, the Kraken has more in common with things like uh, Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, uh, the uh, Paul Cornell uh, sort of psychic police novels that he's come up with. Um, there's a whole tradition of hidden London novels that goes back at least, I suppose, to Charles Williams in the 1940s. And that's something that's always struck me as being fascinating, that um, the idea, for example, uh, in, in Neverwhere, and I saw a stage adaptation of, adaptation of that just a, a year or two ago, uh, is that, okay, what if all these phantom tube stops on the London map really had places? What if there were actually seven sisters at the seven sisters stop? The, the idea that there's a magical city beneath the city, um, there's uh, London, uh, ben, ben Aronovich is another one. There's a whole category of stories that, that romanticize cities by turning them into basically horror stories. There are terrible things happening beneath the cities, but you can somehow con- now, conquer them. That's not a science fictional idea of the city. That's an idea of the city that probably goes back at least as far as Dickens. As a matter of fact, the one novel that actually directly connects that to Dickens is Dan Simmons' Drood, which is in which the secret underground London is visited by Charles himself. That's the fantasy use of the city. And I think that's that is a different thing from the science fiction city. I tend to agree with you that the interesting cities now are the ones that are artificial constructs or that grow up in unexpected places. You mentioned, for example, Sam Miller's uh, Blackfish City. Yeah. But a year before that, there was Anna Lee Newitz, and I can't ever remember how to pronounce the name of her northern uh, Arctic Quine, circle. Quine, 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 Quine. Uh, yeah, you mean from autonomous. Yeah, sure. It's an autonomous, yeah. Uh, but again, it's a city which grew up unexpectedly. And that's what I find kind of fascinating. The idea of the future of cities not being the New Yorks. Uh, we should mention things like uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2145, for example, or 20, whatever it is. But. There's also the idea that the big cities of the future are not the big cities now. And that's one of the things that happens in Annalie Newitz's novel. It's one of the things that happens in, in Chabin's The Yiddish Policeman's Union. Nobody thought that Sitka, Alaska would be a major city, but it turns out to be, in his novel, Israel. And, of course, I mean, Levi Tidhart has moved around this sort of thing with things like Central Station as well, exactly. which in its own way right. is the same kind of an idea. And I guess it is yeah. fair. I mean, I think it's... I would expect and hope to see more great science fiction novels set in in Karachi or in Delhi or in Bangkok or wherever it might be, Singapore, than you know just simply in the kind of places we've been seeing. And I guess you, you I mean you are getting that. You get it through the fiction of you know uh, Venus Jimin Prasad. You get it through Elliot de Bodard and other people. This. Spreading well, out, obviously, the Bodars in Lagos. For, Lagos, for example, is a, is a setting for a, for one of Nettie's uh, novels, and for the at least the first two novels in Tade um, Thompson's series, uh, Rosewater. Yeah. So the idea that the the, the the cities that we assumed, I think this is one of the things that's a healthy 
change, and it is something that's related to the growing cultural sophistication of science fiction, is that cities in science fiction at once at one time meant imaginary technological cities like Trontor, or they meant gigantic megalopoli that turned into um, that, that, that Washington, Boston, New York all became one kind of the sprawl kind of idea from from Neuromancer. Um, and, but we're, we're moving away from the idea that the big cities will get bigger and toward the idea that cities that haven't been featured much in science fiction, like Lagos, like uh, Sao Paulo, uh, are likely to be the cities that we'll be more concerned with in the future. And I think that's an interesting argument. Um, and I think it, it, it's, it's, it's begun to work into uh, popular media as well. I mean, you do get films that are set in South Africa or South America or um, I'm, I'm thinking obviously of um, Johannesburg, the setting for the um, the movie about the aliens in uh, District Nine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 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 in other words, cities are not just big technological Western cities anymore. No, no they are not. cities that, uh, that 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 grow up according to principles that were not even much in evidence back in the '80s when. Uh, when Neuromancer came along, remember the whole idea of the original Sprawl trilogy was that the entire eastern seaboard basically becomes one giant city. I think yeah. we've moved away from that uh, conceit into the idea that uh, cities may not f- spring up where you expected them to spring up. I do think there's an idea that we've been in love with the romance of the city. Certainly, Mieville is, many others have yeah. been. And I do think there's an argument that we're moving to a situation where that romance begins to look like a solution. And I think that's what's interesting. That we loved cities, now cities hmm. may also be what save us. We're, we're going to have to do things. And one of the things that makes the arcology so important is that it's controllable, right? It's a controllable... I mean, if you read, say, New York 2140, or if you read hmm. the, pre- you know, the preceding novel by Stan Robinson... Um, they argue that terraforming Earth is the thing that we need to do. Fix the planet we're on. Uh-huh. Well, in terms of manageable scale and preserving ourselves, creating managed environments as a first step feels like a more achievable thing than fixing the, the planet as a whole. I mean, I don't buy and have never bought the glib ideas that you can just spray something magical into the environment and reflect the heat away and everything will be fine in no time the problems that humanity that the earth face are going to take a long time to address if they get addressed at all and so you you need manageable solutions in a shorter term as well and it seems like in science fiction i expect to see more and more of the city as a response to that possibly the city is one response to it but it's a response to it in 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 terms of what okay i'm going to sound really pedantic for a second here in terms of what um anthropologists used to call the distinction between alloplastic and autoplastic adaptations to environmental change. Alloplastic basically means you change the environment to accommodate you. If the environment is changing to make the world inhospitable, you just build cities that have contained environments and purified water and air and so forth and so on. The alloplastic is you adopt your, adapt yourself for the environment. Mm-hmm. And the example... Actually, the example that I think it was Levi Strauss used for that was 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 uh, the Aboriginal populations of Australia, 
who mark themselves and alter their bodies because they want to seem more in, in keeping with the environment. That idea shows up a little bit in science fiction. It shows up in, in uh, things like Fred Pohl's Man Plus or Clifford Simak's Desertion, the idea that we may have to alter ourselves to fit the city of the future. And to some extent, it shows up in writers like J.G. Ballard, um, who's suggested in his series of disaster novels that maybe we just need to evolve to fit the new environment rather than trying to constantly tame the environment to fit us. And it's, it's, I, think it's a, it's, I think it's a debate that goes on in science fiction. I think the idea of changing us is so anathematic to most readers that not very many writers have dealt with it. Yeah. They've dealt with the idea, okay, we can upload ourselves. Uh, you have the Greg Egan idea that you can turn yourself into a kind of micron uh, and transmit yourself across the universe. But the idea of changing ourselves is so horrific to most readers that I think science fiction has characteristically emphasized, let's find anything we can do to change the environment so that we don't have to change. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That brings us to the end, probably, of our second segment. Another wonderful Which, advertising opportunity yes. for everybody. Please call us now. We will take your money. Dial 1-800-something-something-something. And, yes, we and will, please we'll buy be... all the books from all the publishers that we ever mentioned on the podcast. <laughs> well, we can say, I mean, we mentioned it before, coming later this year from Gary K. Wolf and the Library of America, science fiction, uh, science, classic novels of the 70s. Classic novels of the 1960s. Uh, oh, really? Can't we move on to the 70s? It's been so long since the 50s got in carry. The 50s volume came out in 2012. The It's only seven years. I mean, come on. We're, we're, we're moving a decade ahead in seven-year increments. I mean, by the time we get to the 2020s, we'll be actually ahead of the game. Hey, we'll hey be, what would you put into the 80s volume? Oh, I haven't even thought about the '80s volume. I've gotten a lot of I've given a lot of thought to the '70s volume. I can tell you two things I would put in the '70s volume because I've had them in mind from the beginning. One is Kate Wilhelm's "For Late the Sweet Bird Sang," and the other is Robert Silverberg's "Dying Inside." Which are '70s volumes, yeah, not '80s. For '70s, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I think you get a real problem with the '80s volume, and this is not the, the third topic, but the problem you're going to have with uh, the '80s volume is it's post the rise of bestseller bloat and the average length of a classic science fiction novel from the 80s gets longer and longer and it gets harder and harder to put them into an omnibus i can tell you that already happened in the 60s i will tell you this is the reason we don't have dune or stranger in a strange land in the 1960s volume dune isn't even a long book by modern standards i i'm well aware of that but <laughs> for that matter in terms of the 1980s neither is neuromancer well, no, Neuromancer, which would be a core book for any, yeah. any uh, collection of 80s books, is, is a fairly tightly written book. It's basically a, you know, a crime novel kind of structure, and so it's kept nice and tight. But mm -hmm. other books that you might, might have been interested in, whether it was, say, The Snow Queen by Joan D. Vinge, right? Mm -hmm. long, or Vinge, that long book, by, by, by comparison, hard to get. Five, six, seven of those into a couple of hardcovers. Anyway, well, this is one of the yeah, it's, it's one of the issues. Anyway, that's not our third topic. What is no, our no, third topic? Our third topic actually ties in with the others in some ways. It does because we've talked about time travel and we talked about it as a mechanism to attempt to solve problems of the present. We've talked about cities and urbanization, how that's changed in science fiction, and how that also is a response to what is the single great 
topic of our time, climate change mm. and, the, and the Anthropocene. So the mm. third and final segment really today is about why we're looking to moving to the Arctic as a solution. Whether you look at a book like Stan Robinson's Antarctica, which was one of the mm. major science fiction looks at the polar regions of the last 30 years, or whether it's Sam Miller's Blackfish City, Paul McCauley's Austral, you mentioned Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Pol- Policeman's Union, there's Annalee Annalee's Autonomous. Mm. Climate change is heating up the world, and we're heading to the poles. What is the attraction? What do we get from looking at the poles as a possible setting for story? I, I, that's an interesting question. I think part of it is... I think one part of it goes back to the beginnings of science fiction. The Arctic has been an unknown region ever since, well, ever, ever since Frankenstein, um, which actually takes place. If you actually pay attention to Frankenstein, um, the novel is narrated by a guy who's exploring the Arctic, trying to find, you know, some do, do scientific research, maybe find the magnetic North Pole, and so so it's always been a classic unexplored area. You go from you can go from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to uh, shields the purple cloud, which involves exploring the Arctic. So it, it's, it's still romantic. Second point, the Arctic becomes available. The Arctic is no longer ice-covered. It's, it's part of the ocean, and it has uh, more access probably to fresh water because it's closer to the receding glaciers. I don't know if that's part of the argument. Um, but one of the things that does show up in Sam Miller's novel, and I think in Annalise's novel, uh, is that the, what they call the drowned world or the submerged world or the world to the south is becoming uninhabitable because the, the, the coastlines are, are eroding or disappearing. So the idea of an artificial city in the Arctic seems to be and, – and the other thing is um, with, with global warming, it's no longer requiring quite as much energy possibly to warm one of those cities as it might now. I don't know. I don't know if that's part of the argument. I don't recall seeing elaborate scientific rationales for why the Arctic in either Annalise's novel or in Sam Miller's novel. In um, Antarctica, in Kim Stanley Robinson, I see that as kind of a new frontier, literally in the sense that he uh, was talking about in his preceding Mars novels. As a matter mm. of fact, our mutual friend, our mutual late friend, very late at this point, Charles Brown, <laughs> argued that Antarctica was the entire Mars trilogy set here on Earth in one volume. It is, and I, I would argue it's actually a better book than the whole Mars trilogy. But that's a separate hmm. argument. I love separate Arthur's book. But certainly, I mean, it's fair to say that our view of the Arctic, or the, or the, the polar regions of the planet, perhaps would be a better way to put it, our view of the planet's poles has changed in fiction from being a frontier to being a, a bolt hole, almost. You know, it's like the idea that the uh, the equator will heat up so much that the major mm. populated areas of the Earth will become so un- uninhabitable that we will be driven north and be driven south in search of actual habitable land. That seems like a, a clear thing. What's interesting, mm. I think, when you look at I mean, Blackfish City for, is, is a story that looks at that in transit, right? Uh, yeah. Greg Egan has a novella coming out, Perihelion Summer, later this year. Uh, and it treats it as a, a, a goal, a, 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 a place to, to go to. Uh, mm-hmm. Austral, I think, is interesting, the Macaulay book, because it mm-hmm. treats it as a human landscape in a way that we don't really regard the Arctic or the poles at all. 
you know, it would be of these various solutions the most inhabited of the expressions of the poles that I've seen in science fiction recently. Mm-hmm. I but uh, it, it, follow that thought a little bit further. Why would in the Macaulay novel, for example, why would the Arctic be more inhabitable than the inland areas of the continents? Forgetting for the moment that let's assume that all the coastal cities from New York to Singapore are just gone. Um, why would the Arctic be more appealing or why is it more appealing than, let's say, Denver? Uh, well, first of all, because the, available, the, the number of people competing for land is lower. It, mm. Denver is going to, theoretically will become intensely desirable and hence fought over theoretically by the 300 plus, plus million people who live in North America uh-huh. as not only the coasts, but the center of the country becomes less habitable as well. You know, because of droughts and well, yeah, well because of droughts, because of storms, because of t- tornadoes and stuff, all that kind of that that will be there. The, the the harshness of the climate will only be amplified, as, as will be true through the middle of Australia, as will be tr- true mm-hmm. through Europe and through China, you know, wherever else. So that kind of band of the of the planet, the, the, that, those sort of latitudes, they will become much less habitable. What makes Denver less uninhabitable is its altitude as opposed to its latitude, right? Well, there's only so much high altitude land available. And so the sheer number of people, these seven and a half to 10 billion humans are going to be looking for somewhere where they will not die if they can move. And Mm -hmm. the, 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 if you like, there is, you, you can migrate on foot. It is a, I mean, I'm not trivializing it, but it is possible for humanity to move north and, well, particularly north, much more than south, but uh, in in search of. But but you can't walk to Blackfish City. No, you can't. No. Uh, and, and undeniably, some of the way that this is resolved will be by ocean-going vessels or whatever, as you see in Blackfish City, as you see in Perihelion Summer, as you see in, in other works mm-hmm. of science fiction, you know. Um, what was I reading recently? I think it was a, it was a short story by Sarah Pensker, which, um, who we will talk with shortly as well, mm-hmm. uh, which dealt with the idea that in, in, when the climate collapse comes – the very wealthy, they, there are already gigantic cruise ships that are virtually self-contained environments. They'll simply get in these giant cruise ships and cruise around and uh, uh, figure out ways of uh, surviving while the people left back on the decimated uh, land uh, are just living in this subsistence economy. So, so that I, there are a lot of ideas that ocean-going vessels and ocean-based uh, societies may become inevitable to some extent, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that's – I think that's only part of it. I think part of it is the romance of a city, and I think part of what Sam Miller was enjoying in writing Blackfish City, I think he just loved the idea of designing a city, yeah. uh, of designing a sustainable environment. But what all this is leading into, and this is, uh, this is why I'm unclear as to whether this was part of our third segment or not – we're talking as though these Arctic cities are a subset of what you referred to as Anthropocene fiction mm-hmm. or what's sometimes referred to as climate fiction, yes. uh, the idea that traditional 
traditional urban environments, especially those along the coast, will simply and inevitably become uninhabitable. Yes. And I guess my objection, can, can we segue a little bit into the subset of climate fiction here because Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of things, Gary, this, this is a framework, not a, not a jail. Jail well, song, I mean, please. One of the things I think that goes on with uh, the novels we're talking about, including the Greg Egan story that you mentioned that I've not read, is that there is a grappling with what we now almost know the future of the planet to look like. In other words, there is a acute sense that uh, it's, it's practically a given in science fiction now that a good number of the results of the effects of climate change are already irreversible, that we're not going to be able to save large swaths of, of the global economy. Uh, and, and to some extent, all the fiction we've mentioned is climate fiction. I don't like the term because I think it's misleading. I think that all these things have different um, approaches. I think one of the things we talked to Stan Robinson on this podcast about his New York novel, it's essentially a social comedy that argues we'll figure out a way to survive even with New York inundated in unlikely ways. What concerns me is when you start looking at this kind of fiction and you look beyond a Sam Miller who's really thought about these issues or an Anna Lee Newitz who has really thought about these issues and you go back and you try to find earlier world inundation novels and kidnap them into our current genre. In other words, you go back and look at um, one of the ones that I see cited all the time as an early precursor of climate fiction is Ballard's The Drowned World. But The Drowned World was part of a series of four novels that dealt with what he called, actually in the, the term he coined in the novel The Drowned World, if I'm not mistaken, was archaeopsychic space. The Drowned World is this kind of romantic, psychic thing that, that deals with art having to change with the environment. But it followed uh, the drought and it followed uh, the wind from nowhere and it was succeeded by the crystal world. He had, he loved writing ends of the world things and the drowned world wasn't an awful warning about global warning at all. Uh, any more than was S. Fowler writes the deluge back in the 20s uh, or for that matter Stephen Baxter's flood just only 10 years ago, all of which dealt with with inundations of the world. And actually, in the, in the case of Baxter and I think in the case of Fowler Wright, water just sort of wells up from the interior of the earth and inundates everything. It has nothing to do with what we're doing to the climate at all. So you can't just go back and kidnap earlier works and say they're part of your current uh, trend in, in fiction. The Drowned World is not an awful warning novel. Ballard's characters love these disasters. They thrive <laughs> in them. They get off on them. They, they change because of them. Well, you sort of skipped into what was going to be a new standard epilogue to this, sh this sh each episode, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure will be. We have to see. Some of this, these changes are works in progress. But mm -hmm. we were going to revive um, books you don't need to read. Mm -hmm. And I think we've realized that, honestly, the time for that has come and gone. We did it back in the early well, days of the, of the podcast, in the first year, in 2010. Yeah. Uh, and there was a use at the time, I think, to saying that, you know, readers didn't need to feel burdened by the past. But perhaps yeah. what your 
I mean, because you, 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 the actual book you'd cited as the book we didn't, we could talk about as you not needing to read, yeah. was Ballard's *The Dry and Drowned World*, a book which I only read two years ago, and which led directly to my anthology *Drowned Worlds*. Ah, uh-huh. I mean, I mean, absolutely, one hundred percent, directly, directly, and which does connect in terms of subject matter to a lot of what we'll be talking about today. But we're saying earlier that maybe, and we'll see how we go with this because we're just about at the end of our time. Maybe what we'll talk about is. How do you go about reading or uh, somebody, you know, in 2019, 2020, how do you go about reading Frank Herbert or H.P. Lovecraft yeah. or Robert Heinlein? Is it still, what, what's there to be gotten for a reader of today? And maybe we'll get some people in to talk about us. But for the moment, I think we've kind of round, rounded up unless there's something you want to touch on, the main core of what we're going to talk about this week. I think we kind of have. We've, 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 and I'm, I'm, well, I'm tempted to go on, on for another hour about, I guess, the, to, to, to go back 10 years or whatever it was. The idea that books you don't need to read was, and to some extent, a response to a lot of older readers and critics, mostly older but not all, basically arguing for an entrance exam to be a science fiction yes. reader. Yeah. In other yeah. words, if you haven't passed, if you haven't read these books, you have no right to read these books. Yeah. And I think that argument has pretty much been lost. I mean, to some extent, yeah. um, you have a generation of people who couldn't care less about Heinlein and Asimov. And those. You have, probably have a generation of people who couldn't care less about William Gibson or, uh, or Ian MacDonald or Paul McCauley or, or, or Greg Egan. Uh, you don't need to read anything to write science fiction. So to some extent, we were pushing back against that. The news segment, as I understand it, and as we've talked about it a little bit in email, is that well, no, you don't have to read this, but if you're going to read them, don't read them in the wrong way. My argument is don't read Ballard as awful warning environmental novels because they're not. They're psych- psychological novels. Um, we could talk about Neuromancer at great length, and we probably will from this way. We'll be talking about Heinlein this way. Not that you shouldn't read them, but that you shouldn't kidnap them for your own purposes. You should read them for what their actual value is in the history of science fiction. Yeah. And, I mean, to, to give readers a sense that we actually are serious about trying to plan a little, next week we have plans. We certainly are planning to talk to Neil Clark about mm-hmm. uh, the state of the short, short fiction field. We may rope somebody else into that. I don't know, but at the moment we're going to talk to Neil. We're certainly planning on talking to Charlie Jane Andrews about her new novel. And we're also going to be talking about, I think, the Locus Recommended Reading List, which will have dropped at that time. But we're still sketching, mm-hmm. sketching that out. But we're actually working. We've got plans beyond that. I mean, Gary's already foreshadowed. We will be talking to Sarah Pinsker about her new novel and collection and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's going to be a busy 2019. I thought we were going to stop doing this just about. But it seems like at the moment we're getting episodes out. It seems to be happening, and it's always fun to talk. And it's – I guess I'll do the ending. It's as always, it's been the Cood Street Podcast. Bye now.